Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. How are you enjoying the lovely British summertime? Yes, not necessarily scandalous, but it's great. (laughs) Yeah, we should really be thinking about recording outdoors in this claustrophobic little studio. Are you, by the way, keeping your finger on the pulse on travel? I know that you're desperate to get your wings back. Very much so, yes. Hopefully sorting something out, either from the UK or from the United States, over the next few weeks. It's a shame. Fantastic. Okay, so last week we discussed part one of the Marconi scandal. You left us on quite the cliffhanger. We've been getting a lot of complaints, but good ones that they can't wait to hear the end of the story. The Marconi scandal involved Jews in government seemingly involved in insider trading. So just can we have a quick recap for the few who might have forgotten a couple of the details? Okay, so you have a business called Marconi run jointly by Guillermo Marconi, an Italian non-Jew, and a British Jew called Godfrey Isaacs. They run two parallel companies with public shares, one in the United States and the other in the UK. The brother of Godfrey Isaacs is the Attorney General for the government in the UK, And he will end up buying American shares before they are publicly available, which gives rise to a public inquiry. And the press and parliament are now pushing for the truth and public opinion feeling that there's been a cover up. And that means that the liberal government is forced to answer searching questions, both regarding the awarding of the contract and separately the buying of shares by various government officials. Although at this stage, perhaps to point out two things which were not mentioned last time. Firstly, Rufus Isaacs, the Attorney General, has not technically broken the law by buying shares in the American company. He's been economical with the truth by stressing that they have never owned any shares in the British Marconi company without expanding. Because he is obviously aware that the moment the British government awards a contract to the British Marconi company, the American counterpart will benefit and its share prices will rise. Therefore, Parliament now has to establish, firstly, a technical committee to examine the rival wireless companies and test the post office's claim that, in fact, only Marconi's system could reliably carry out the job. So four other systems were tested, and the committee agrees that the post office was right in saying that only Marconi could have carried out the contract. Well, that would mean that there was good reason for the government to have awarded the contract to Marconi. Yes, but is it going to help the mood, especially the the lack of transparency? In politics, as you're aware, it isn't what you do, but how you do it and how you're seen to have done it. Mm. 
So Parliament now turns to the main issue, which is the process and outcome of the contract and the finances. By now we're in 1913, but the Liberals in government were able to muster a majority and therefore they were able to survive no-confidence motions, but the mood in the country was defiant. The French financial journal Le Matin published a version of events which gives the impression that the two Jewish ministers, Herbert Samuel and Rufus Isaacs, were corrupt. And although they do apologize shortly afterwards in writing, the government ministers decide to sue the newspaper for libel. And the action was actually undefended in French court because it was so clearly libelous. And the ministers themselves took to the witness stand. And the courts, the courtroom was quite interesting. There were perhaps 40 or 50 reporters present because this is now international news and 10 photographers. And Le Matin pays the costs of the libel case. So Isaacs is vindicated. But back in England, Cecil Chesterton, who's the brother of the author G.K. Chesterton, has been attacking Godfrey Isaacs in a series of articles. There are sandwich board men. Well, you don't see it much nowadays, but in those days it was very common. In the good days. They are walking up and down outside the House of Commons, selling copies of the journal with the headline, Godfrey Isaacs' Ghastly Financial Record. And the article carries innuendos of financial misdeeds in some of his previous companies. And Godfrey Isaacs now sues Chesterton, but in this case for criminal libel, which means that it could result in a prison sentence if Chesterton were to be found guilty. He didn't do that in the case of the French. No, he does this here because it's involves Parliament. He couldn't have done it to a Overseas. foreign newspaper. But he does it because he wants to discourage other people from hounding him. A civil action would only result in financial damages, and newspapers could have just retreated into bankruptcy. Now, Isaacs won on five out of six counts, but Chesterton was not sentenced to jail, so both sides claimed victory. There were other papers. Uh, there's the Gazette, which is a liberal paper, and that continued its solid support for the party in what must have been quite difficult circumstances. And then you have the Times. So although it was a conservative paper, but the policy of the paper depended on its owner, Lord Northcliffe. And it seems from a variety of sources that his personal intervention was responsible for the newspaper taking a toned-down approach to the scandal. But there were still others. One called The Outlook very much made use of stereotypes, portraying the Jew as a conspirator against the British way of life. And Godfrey Isaacs is described as a financier of the chosen race. And uh, Lawson, the editor, 
attempted to suggest that the Marconi Company was a Jewish-dominated organization and that a majority of shares were held by foreigners, you know, playing on all these stereotypes and using terms such as he wanted his pound of flesh of the royalties and that they are poisoning the wells of public opinion. So it sounds like things were really not going too well for the Jews. Well, it's not just the Marconi scandal by the time we get to 1913, because there is another Jewish government scandal, which is, yes, which is comparable. And that is the Indian silver affair. Buying silver for India on behalf of the government, which was usually undertaken in consultation with the Bank of England. But the silver market at the time had a very small number of brokers. And as a result, there was a ring of speculators waiting to force the prices up as soon as the government appears as a buyer. And there's only one company in a position to buy large quantities of silver in secrecy, which is obviously what you need to do if the speculators are to be avoided. And that firm was Samuel Montague and Company. Quite the coincidence. Right. Now, Edwin Montague is the Under Secretary of State for India, and it's his father who owns this company. He also has a cousin who's a Liberal Member of Parliament, who is a senior partner in the firm, as well as being the brother of Herbert Samuel, the Postmaster General that we spoke about last time. And there are other Jews involved, Sir Felix Schuster um, and the Assistant Under Secretary of State, uh, Lionel Abrahams. So there are a lot of relationships here with family ties and a common Jewish link, which provokes an obvious reaction in the UK. Were Jews everywhere or was it this powerful family that... uh... There were a few families. It's comparable to the Rothschilds a century earlier. There are a few families who have very important roles to play, both politically and financially, and this was the outcome. Mm. It was sort of an unfortunate confluence of events rather than planned in advance, although it wouldn't be seen that way, but that was the reality. Now, it has to be said that having put the brokerage of Montague and company into position, the government did save a lot of money. But obviously, Samuel Montague's company made a very decent profit, perhaps as much as £7,000, which you can put a couple of zeros on to get to today's prices. And there is an inquiry in Parliament, a number of questions being asked. You may be familiar with Hansard, which is the official parliamentary record, which is available to the public. I think all of it is online nowadays. So an extract from February 1913 will give you a flavour of what was going on. I quote a question that was addressed to the Liberal Party. A short time ago, the Prime Minister resented the suggestion made by the leader of the opposition that information on this subject, in other words, the Indian silver affair, had to be extracted from the government as if we were drawing teeth. 
as I have been one of those who have endeavoured to bring about that process, I should like to take one example of this prevarication and this reluctance on the part of the India office to give information. At the start, no one was aware of what had taken place with regard to the placing of this contract, and I put down a question asking for a copy of the contract with Messrs. Samuel Montague and Company for the purchase of silver and a copy of the terms, and this is the reply I received. No formal contract for the purchase of silver was entered into with Messrs. Samuel Montague and Company. Letters of instruction were sent on each occasion. And so, with the Honourable Member's permission, may I ask if he will give the complete correspondence and not merely extracts from certain letters as he has done previously? And, you know, you can imagine here, here in the background, if you've ever tuned into Prime Minister's Question Time, and you get a sense of what was happening. You're followed closely by order, order. Uh, right, exactly. What was the effect of all this negative press, the newspaper articles, the debates of Parliament? It must have had a huge effect in, in England. So politically, uh, for the first time, Jews are seen to be dangerously influential. Now, proportionally speaking... They were overrepresented in national politics, not majorly. The Jewish population was approximately one half of 1% of Great Britain, about 250,000 out of 41 million. But 3% of all MPs, a total of 17, which is six times their representation. And this was taken as growing Jewish political power, and they are quite visible. And in terms of the vote, the number of Jewish eligible voters in 1910-1912 was only 25,000, but they did make up significant blocks in London, Manchester, Leeds, perhaps Glasgow. So all of that means that there is concern being registered. And then there is the poem, the poem against Rufus Isaacs. Because in 1913, Isaacs moves from being the Attorney General to becoming the Lord Chief Justice of England, the highest legal position, and he will remain in that job for the next eight years. The author, Rudyard Kipling, think Jungle Book, oh. writes a hate poem about Isaacs as being completely corrupt. He doesn't mention him by name, but the poem is about a judge in Israel who stretches forth his ready hand, in other words, for bribes, and wears scarlet and ermine robes and chain of England's gold, which is exactly that which the Chief Justice wears. And he ends the poem by saying he is a leper white as snow, and he calls the poem Gehazi. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners are as clued in about Tanakh and the stories of the prophets as Kipling was. I don't mean the one who makes exceedingly good cakes. <laughs> but a brief recap. So, Elisha, the prophet, cures Naaman, who is a non-Jewish general of leprosy, and he refuses Naaman's reward. But soon after, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, asks Naaman privately for a talent of silver. 
And Gehazi then comes back and conceals these gains from Elisha, who punishes him to suffer the leprosy of Naaman. And the last sentence there is, and he went out from his presence, a leper white as snow. So this is a no-hold-barred attack on the highest judge of the country. It's quite a jump from the Jungle Book to such political... Uh... Right. He was, he was somewhat involved. And in fact, he tries to get it published, but no newspaper will do so because of the likelihood of libel action by Rufus Isaacs. So he goes to Lord Beaverbrook, who owns the Daily Express, which has the largest circulation of any newspaper in the world at that time. And Beaverbrook says, I'll print it if you're able to garble it and make it less libelous. To which Kipling replies in uh, November 1913, I can't garble my gehazi. It's meant for that Jew boy on the bench. Wow. So this is clearly the result of being seen as less than honest in public office. Yep. And then World War I breaks out, which means that foreigners are now treated with suspicion, especially those who speak German or Yiddish. At the same time, or a couple of years later, but within the time of the First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution will break out, and Jews are very clearly and easily identified within the ranks of the Communists' Party. Even Winston Churchill, a friend of the Jews, wrote that there is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and, for the most part, atheist Jews. So Jews are foreigners when there is a world war. They are revolutionaries. They are untrustworthy in Parliament. They collude. What are we saying was the outcome? So, listen, we, we can't link all the dots, but we do understand that there's been groundwork put in place which casts the Jews in a suspicious light. There are certain outcomes that we can point to. Firstly, we mentioned the Aliens Act of 1905 last week. In 1919, there is a follow-up to it, and this one brought into being through non-Jews, which was more radical and allowed Jews to be returned to the countries of their origin, even if they'd been living in England for a while. And the argument to deport them didn't have to be that strong. And although it was technically against alien immigration as such, the people affected by this legislation are Jews. Then you have general life. Anti-Jewish discrimination in the interwar period was something that few Jews avoided altogether at any socioeconomic level. So you, for instance, have restaurants and hotels placing a sign in their windows that they will not cater to Jews. Admission to the better public schools and colleges is reduced. St. Paul's, for instance, now imposes a quota, as does University College London. Then you have newspaper adverts for secretaries, shop assistants, which specifies that Jews will not be hired. And in the London hospital, which is in the heart of the Jewish East End, the atmosphere is hostile to Jewish medical students. And one of the teachers there went so far as to put the Jews at the back 
of his lecture room. That was the place allotted to them. I'm honestly quite shocked I didn't know all this. Has this been like glossed over in history? It was a phase which nowadays has, you know, completely passed out of existence due to various factors, legislation, standing, and just the passage of time. Although we do have to bear in mind that prejudice was much more tolerated and blatant back then against black people, against women, against Jews, therefore. But nevertheless, this is a visible departure from behaviour regarding the Jews to what was the case 10 or 20 years earlier. But it did take place in England. And you have a similar reaction in literature. You have well-known authors, T.S. Eliot, H.G. Wells, Dorothy Sayers, Agatha Christie, who rarely write about a Jew other than as a negative stereotype, a sort of a Shylock, meaning that even if these Jews are naturalized, the Jew was by definition a cosmopolitan alien who would never have the same loyalties as the Englishman. And, uh, you know, journalists, travel writers, commentators, they write about the Jews as being materialistic, corrupt, and... Obviously, it is propaganda, which means it's not law, so it doesn't have an immediate effect. And in Britain, few people were obsessed by this. Uh, They don't view the Jews as evil incarnate, but they are the outsider. And there is a paper called The Morning Post, which held very strong views on the Marconi scandal, was a right-wing conservative journal, and continued to be very hostile to the Jews both during and after the First World War. And in 1920, it publicizes the infamous Protocols of the Elders of Zion in England. And these are things which before the war would never have happened, and more worryingly, they now find believers. So whilst it's true, to answer your question, that the the revolution and the First World War are turning points, the events of 1912 and 1913 lay the groundwork for an accusation about Jews conspiring against the country and often for financial gains. And we know of the fascist party that existed in England in the 1930s, especially in London, which attracted people of very different profiles. And if you take an individual like Ernest Bevan, who was strongly opposed to communism, but it was partly due to anti-Semitic paranoia and seeing communism as a Jewish plot against Britain. Now, Bevan, after World War II, will become the foreign secretary. And he is the one who will refuse to change the quota and allow any more Jews into Palestine after the Holocaust. He is infamously remembered for saying, and I quote, There has been agitation in the United States for a 100,000 Jews to be put in Palestine. I hope I will not be misunderstood in America if I say that this was proposed because they don't want too many Jews in New York. And he refuses. He refuses to allow those Jews who are languishing in DP camps into Palestine. And by the way, he actually lived in 
gold as green for a while, which is a little known fact. Well, if only he could see gold as green now. Yes, that's true. Probably turning in his grave. <laughs> and in terms of the late 1930s, so we are aware of the kinder transports that came to England, but England was visibly far less active in promoting Jewish emigration from Nazi Germany, even after Kristallnacht. It was only for children that this changed. Now, we therefore don't know how affected British policy in the Middle East was, or during the Second World War, policy decisions about bombing Auschwitz and the train tracks. We can never know such things. We do know that our actions are watched, seen, and interpreted by the whole of society around us, and in today's world by the entire global audience. And there's no such thing as a quiet family fight in public. So we can't relate all events neatly to each other, but clearly England was a less friendly place to Jews, and ultimately that happened at a time when Jews needed refuge and help. So there was an outcome, and we need to be particular about our behaviour. The more prominent we are, uh, the more it is seen widely. And Rufus Isaacs himself, well, he would go on to be Governor General of India, Foreign Secretary, Leader of the House, and when he dies, he's cremated in the Golders Green Hoop Lane Crematorium, um, although his son is actually buried in the Hoop Lane Cemetery across the road from the crematorium. Oh, wow. Goodness, Rabbi Hirsch, that brings our Scandals series to a close. A thought I've had now that we're wrapping up is, it does seem that anti-Semitism is always there, is always low, and it sort of rears its ugly head when an opportunity arises, such as a high-level Jewish scandal. But many of the things we've spoken about you know, they've been sort of isolated instance almost, and that would lead to a much bigger, like all the publications suddenly conspiring. So although, of course, we do need to always be careful, there does seem to be that low-level anti-Semitism that has always been and always will be, you know, below yes. the surface. In other words, we can't only say that X or Y is responsible for it, either a particular event or a particular individual. It's just that we need to be vigilant. And yes, as you say, acknowledge that there is latent anti-Semitism for certain people all the time. And we have a responsibility to make sure that it doesn't flare up. Right. And, and one other point, if I may, I sort of see when Jews are in a position of power, then that can lend its way to suspicions and scandal and Jews are running the world. But at the same time, it's important for us to have Jews in a position of power in order to be able to influence government and in order to represent us well in the higher... How's one... We look through history and we see that it's served us well and has been yeah. our defeat. So there is no easy answer to that. And Jews tend to be prominent way beyond their numbers in any society where they're given opportunities, and this would be true throughout history. There's no real getting away from that. It's part of being in Golos, being in exile, that we will be accused of things that we have not necessarily done as a result. Yeah, it's a given. Right. Okay, thank you very much. Make sure to tune in next week. We're going to be starting a new series 
of three unique unknown Holocaust dilemmas. And if Rabbi Hirsch says they're unknown, then they are likely to be very <laughs> unknown. Well, yes, to give a little detail, but uh, you can look on the Daily website for more details. In 1941, it's the Rabbi, December of 41. In May of 43, the Capo. And in August of 44, the Fugitive. One of them is a rather unbelievable story, and one of them is heroic but very tragic. So we will see those three over the next few weeks. And the third one is just, uh, you're leaving on a summer cliffhanger. Absolutely, I can't give away all. (laughs) Thank you very much. Make sure to tune in next week. And as always, any feedback, any comments, any suggestions on future topics, please email podcasts at jle.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Many thanks.